Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with Dr. Ron Hasner. He is Chancellor's Professor of Political Science and Helen Diller Family Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. I'm honored to be in dialogue with him today regarding his new book, Anatomy of Torture, published by Cornell University Press, 2022. Ron, I'm sincerely grateful to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for having me. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your life that reveal something about you as a person or that formed the scholar you would later become? So I grew up in Israel and I spent the first uh, 21 years of my life there, which probably uh, goes a long way to explain why I'm interested in international conflict, territorial disputes, religion, international politics. Um, And that's much of what my work focused on in the first uh, 20 years or so after I received my uh, PhD at Stanford. Um, I wrote several books about conflicts over holy places, uh, which of course is is a issue of interest to anybody who studies the Middle East uh, and South Asia. Um, I wrote about uh, religion and militaries around the world and how the religion of militaries affects the decisions they make on the battlefield um, and was very involved in promoting scholarship on religion and conflict, including a book series uh, that I continue to edit, including a, uh, a, an academic um, institution that I set up that focuses on religion and international politics uh, that now has uh, about 250 scholars in it. Uh, and then uh, perhaps as a function of, of COVID, uh, I uh, shifted my interests uh, in a slightly different direction and became very interested in the topic of interrogational torture, which led to this book. It's very different from my prior books. Um, I've uh, never really done this kind of deep archival research before, certainly not into 400, 500 year old documents. Um, and I had never studied torture before. In fact, it turns out that very few people have studied torture before. So uh, this really is a, is a fresh new adventure, uh, pretty disconnected from anything I'd done prior. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? Uh, what's inspired me to write this book and often inspired me to write other uh, articles and books is uh, when people... Uh, very loudly and very confidently say stupid things. Uh, And in this particular case, there was a a dialogue around US torture policy after 9-11 that I found to be very disappointing, both from people who opposed torture, who seemed to me to say things about torture that were not anchored in reality, and uh, people who defended torture after 9-11, who also seemed to me to be saying things that were not anchored in reality, Because the truth is we know very, very, very little about contemporary torture. Not only do we know very little about torture in the United States in the last 20 years, 
we don't even know very much about torture in the 20th century. We have no documents, very few documents, from uh, torture uh, conducted by the Nazis, torture conducted by the Soviets during the Cold War, uh, torture conducted by the French in Algeria or the Americans in Vietnam. Most of these documents have not been declassified. Many are lost or have been destroyed. The torturers won't speak about the acts they've committed. Even the torture victims are reluctant to speak. And so much of the public dialogue around torture in the US was based on uh, speculation, hearsay, wishful thinking. And so I was looking for a rigorous academic source that could actually teach us something about when torture happens, how it works, and what the results are. What are the primary findings of your research? So my research is based on uh, documents from the Spanish Inquisition, of which there are many hundreds of thousands. I didn't read all of them, but I read, uh, I carefully selected different times and places and sources. Um, and so I, I should emphasize that my findings are findings about torture under the Spanish Inquisition 400, 300, 400 years ago. And I'm very, very careful to then speculate about how those might apply to contemporary concerns. So having said that, what, what have I learned about torture under the Spanish Inquisition? Um, I learned two things which I think disappoint both torture critics and torture proponents. The, the finding that I think will disappoint simplistic torture critics is that torture can, under certain restricted conditions, such as prevail during the Spanish Inquisition, torture can elicit accurate, useful information. By which I mean information that people would not otherwise volunteer and information that matches information that is not extracted out of the torture. In other words, people who are tortured will often reluctantly provide information that's true. Not all the time, not easily, uh, but sometimes they will. So, so the simplistic notion that, quote, torture doesn't work, unquote, uh, it has no basis in reality. And I think we all sort of knew that. We, we hoped that torture doesn't work, but we really had no reason to assume uh, that humans uh, subjected to tremendous amounts of pain would not tell you things that they otherwise wouldn't tell you. Uh, and so the documents from the Inquisition allow me to show that, and I can go into greater detail later on if you like. The other important finding disappoints torture supporters who often say torture is a quick and easy way to get crucial information out of terrorists while the bomb is ticking. And those are the conditions under which it should be used. When you really have no time to conduct careful intelligence gathering, you can quickly grab somebody and torture them and they'll immediately tell you everything you need to know. And that turns out to be absolutely incorrect. The Spanish Inquisition tortured people not over the course of hours and days or even weeks. They tortured people over the course of months and years. A year or two being a very reasonable average of time for people to be imprisoned in solitary confinement, occasionally tortured over and over again. Uh, and it was then after years of interrogation that they revealed information that was often true and useful to the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, but it's not a quick process. And it's not a process that the Inquisition ever used. And that's the last point I'll make. It's not a process that the Inquisition ever used in order to reveal new information. 
So that's a third misconception about torture. The torture is not used in order to discover something we didn't know before. Uh, what I would call exploratory torture. I have no idea where the bomb is. I have no idea when it's going off. Tell me everything. Instead, the Spanish Inquisition used torture in order to confirm suspicions they already had. They had two or three different sources, non-torture sources, that pointed usually to a secret Jewish community or a secret Muslim community. And they used torture in order to confirm what they knew to be true and complete the circle of testimony and sort of to be able to close the case. That's also why they tended to use torture only after two, three years of interrogation. So torture, I think, works very, very differently than the average American imagines it would work, for better or worse. Can you share some stories from your book that were distinctly meaningful to you? Were there any stories that you personally came across that moved you personally while preparing this book? Yes, absolutely. And, and I have to say that this is probably, emotionally speaking, the most difficult research I conducted. Mm -hmm. And the fact that some of it happened during COVID did not make it easier. Mm -hmm. COVID was sort of an interesting moment in which to imagine yourself in the dark dungeons of the Spanish Inquisition mm -hmm. while this sort of global pandemic is, is rolling over the landscape. Um, there were there were many moments. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll just uh, mention in general. I'll mention a general trend, and then I'll I'll talk about a specific case. Uh, these people are being tortured mostly because the Inquisition believes that they are not true Christian. Uh, they pretend to be Christian, but they are in fact mostly Jewish, uh, and so they're being tortured for lighting candles on Friday evening, for refusing to eat pork for fasting on Yom Kippur, for eating during Lent. Um, and they're just they're just regular people, right? This is not the torture of terror suspects. This is not the torture of Al-Qaeda or ISIS insurgents. These are you know grandmothers and granddaughters. These are children and fathers and mothers who are being uh, tormented because they refuse to eat bread during Passover. Um, so so that's that's extremely painful. And I'm hoping we'll talk in a couple of minutes about the, the sort of shape that this interrogation takes. Uh, it is not as many imagine the Spanish Inquisition to be um, that the Inquisitor demands a confession and the tortured person then, you know, eventually breaks down and gives them the confession. That's not what's happening at all. The Inquisitor asks the victim to tell them everything. And the victim is sort of desperately trying to figure out what they need to say for the torture to stop. And, and the answer is, there is no such formula. The Inquisitor wants to know everything. And the Inquisitor will not let them go until they've said everything, until they've revealed all the names and betrayed all their family members and surrendered all their sacred texts. Um, so most of what's happening in the torture chamber is sort of a plea for the torture to end. And that's, that's very hard. Uh, a specific scene that uh, I, I kind of found shocking I read it in the Berkeley Library together with a Latin American librarian. Um, what was a scene in which um, uh, the, a, a, a suspect, his name is uh, Manuel de Lucena, and he's uh, uh, a, a protagonist in my book. In one of his last trials, he has admitted to being Jewish. He has betrayed all his friends. 
He's the leader of a secret Jewish community in Mexico City, and he has laid that community bare to the position. And they're all getting arrested. Um, and in one of the last sessions, Manuel is asked to perform for the inquisitory panel, for the judges, he's asked to perform uh, the Shema prayer, the most important prayer in Judaism. And he does that, but he doesn't speak Hebrew very well. He doesn't quite know the words because he's a member of an underground community that was not allowed to pray together or study together. Uh, he's never seen a rabbi. He doesn't know how to read Hebrew. So he sort of does his best uh, to recollect the prayer as best he can. And it's sort of in garbled Hebrew. And well, as he's doing this in front of the tribunal, he's also showing them the, the body motions and the hand motions that he learned from his parents and from his grandparents. Uh, he puts his hand on his heart and he bows his head in a particular way. And then uh, a month later, he's burned at the stake. He's executed. So, uh, you know, we, we, were, we were sitting in this Berkeley library and we were really rattled. There was something very, just deeply shocking um, about this performance and, and then the tragic end of, of Manuel, who, you know, whose who's only sin in life was that he was a, a Jew pretending to be a Christian. Why have theorists of international relations paid insufficient attention to torture? Um, so first of all, it's not clear that it's an international relations topic. It's something that governments tend to do to their own citizens or to the people over which they rule, whether they're citizens or not. Um, so so it's, a, it's a sort of a domestic politics issue. It connects to international relations because it can be used as a source of information, as a source of espionage. And international relations scholars are increasingly becoming interested in intelligence and espionage. So I think that's one reason. It doesn't sit comfortably in any academic field. Um, I guess people who study medicine might be interested in torture. People who study psychology might be interested in torture. Um, people who study domestic politics, freedom, democracy, liberal rights might be interested in torture. Not so much students of international politics. So I think that's a problem. And the other problem is that this topic is very, very touchy. My colleagues and I have been very reluctant until quite recently to study genocide, to study rape on the battlefield and other sexual crimes, um, in part because of the emotional burden of studying them. It's just like you don't sleep well at night, but also because there's always the worry that as we theorize about these things, as we study them in a cold and detached manner, which is I think how they should be studied, um, that we are somehow justifying them or rationalizing them. So when my colleagues first started studying genocide about 20, 30 years ago, um, the, the, the pushback was often, how dare you theorize about the causes of genocide? People who are causing genocide are just crazy. If you theorize about it, it's as if you're explaining when it's acceptable or when it's useful. Now, of course, that's not what theories of genocide do, but you can see, uh, you can see how it can be misperceived that way. But similarly, people who study suicide bombing uh, or extreme forms of terrorism often get this pushback. You know, how dare you explain why a suicide bomber does what he does? Um, the best explanation it should be, he's crazy. 
uh, not it fulfills some role or it accomplishes some policy, what policy could just possibly justify terrorism? And so similarly, I think the study of torture, trying to explain when it happens and how it happens and what results it yields, could be misunderstood as somehow legitimizing torture, which is not the case at all. As a result of which, those people who have studied torture usually have just criticized it. That's all they've done. So I, I have you know, 30, 40 books on torture on my shelf. Most of them are just anti-torture texts. It's bad and here's why it's bad. And here are all the terrible forms that it takes. And here's how it impacts victims in the short term. And here's how it impacts victims in the long term. And of course, it never yields any information. It's just stupid. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Um, these are very powerful, persuasive books, but they're not precise, uh, careful scholarship. They tend to be uh, they tend to be diatribes. They're, they're they're people getting on soapboxes. You write as follows on page twenty two. There's a quote I'd be curious to ask you about. You write completeness. The desire to assemble comprehensive dossiers provided a stronger motivator for torture. Torture was reserved for witnesses who provided incomplete testimonies, enforcing all witnesses to reveal all they knew. The Inquisition could assure itself that it had exhausted all avenues of investigation prior to concluding a case. This explains why torture sessions tended to take place toward the end of individual trials and at the conclusion of networks of trials, often after years of investigations and questioning. The Inquisition did not rely on torture to uncover new evidence, but to put the finishing touches on existing evidence so that a trial could end with a confident verdict, guilty or not, with no stone having been left unturned. Can you say more about this? Sure, sure. So in surveys of Americans, and I've conducted a couple of those surveys, when you ask Americans, what are the conditions under which you would grudgingly, reluctantly, imagine yourself sanctioning torture? The answer is, uh, if I'm in a rush, if the government knows uh, that an attack is coming very soon, and I've caught someone who has that information, and I don't know anything about the attack. I know this person, somehow I know that this person uh, is a terrorist. Um, then and only then, when there's extreme time pressure, would I be willing to contemplate torture? The segment that you read from my book suggests that that is not how torture happens and that is not how torture works. To put it differently, once you understand how torture happens, you realize that it happens under conditions that Americans would never be willing to sanction. It happens not in order to reveal crucial, quick information, but it happens in order to corroborate already known information. So the Inquisition never tortured as a first resort. It didn't need to. When the Inquisition came into a town, whether it was in Spain or in the colonies overseas, it, first of all, asked people to come in and provide willing evidence. And a lot of people were willing to do that because they feared the Inquisition. And it was better to provide voluntary evidence than to wait to be arrested and to be possibly be tortured. So they had massive numbers of dossiers from willing witnesses. And because the Inquisition made it a point to place at headquarters, always in the center of town in a very visible location, 
Everybody in town knew who those willing witnesses were, which of course produced even more willing witnesses. If I've seen both of my neighbors walk into the Inquisition headquarters, odds are I was going to be there the next day, maybe to incriminate myself, maybe to confess that my family had done some bad in the past, maybe to rat out neighbors in turn. This was known as the period of grace. And in this first month or two, the Inquisition uh, handed out quite lenient punishments. So there were all these incentives to provide information. Only then, when all this information was collected and very meticulously copied and corroborated and collated, so that every Inquisition file was 600, 700, sometimes multiple thousands of pages in length, every file on every person. Only then did the Inquisition start arresting people who did not provide willing testimony. Those people were then interrogated without torture over the course of months, sometimes years, while more witnesses were brought in and more people were arrested and possibly people who had already been interrogated were brought in to be interrogated a second and a third time. And then about three, four years after having arrived in this town, that's when the tortures began. When were they used? You can imagine, uh, Ari, that you and I have attended a Rosh Hashanah service together. And you had confessed to the Inquisition. Uh, Ron was there, and Tom was there, and John was there, and I was there. We were all praying together. And then I had been brought into the Inquisition, and I had said, yes, what Ari said is true. I was there, and Ari was there, and Tom was there, and John was there, and Peter was there. And, and Tom and John confessed similarly. And Peter was the final holdout. He sat in the prison of the Inquisition and he simply would not confirm what the Inquisition already knew to be true because you'd been there and I'd been there and we had all uh, described the same event on the same date with the same detail. So really Peter's confession is not necessary to condemn us. Peter's confession is only necessary because he's the last holdout, because this is a religious institution that seeks full and complete confessions of sin. And because they can't close the case until everybody involved has admitted everything they've done. And that's where, after multiple warnings to Peter, if he does not confess what they already know to be true, that's when they would torture him. And a solid 30, 40% of the time, uh, under those circumstances, the torture victim would then collaborate and provide information. You can see, Ari, that in this kind of condition, it's very hard for Peter to lie to the Inquisition because they already know so much. They know where the meeting happened. They know who was there. They know he was there. They know what was eaten. They know what we wore. They know at what hour we arrived and what hour we left. They have all of these data at their disposal. The only thing they need is Peter's signature on the bottom of the page. So he can lie to them for a while, but they're just not, they're, it's not gonna work, right? Eventually, they're going to just keep saying to him, what you're telling us is not true. We needed to tell us the truth. And eventually he will break under torture. So it's very, very, very different from your average CIA Guantanamo Bay scenario in which speed uh, is necessary for dismantling a, a ticking bomb. Uh, I don't, as best as I understand how torture works, I don't think that ticking bomb torture works at all. And the kind of torture that does work the kind of torture I just described to you, the kind of torture that lasts two, three years, I don't think is the kind of torture that any American 
would would support. You present different categories of torture, interrogative, exploratory, confessional, and corroborative. What do you mean by these terms? Can you explain to our listeners the different types of torture that you present in your book? Yeah, so there are, there are many, and different scholars use different terms. And again, there's a sort of wariness, I think, of, of using this sort of analytic language to describe something that's really quite horrible. Uh, but just as there are different types of genocide, and just as there are different types of uh, terrorism, so there are different types of torture for different purposes. Uh, there is uh, torture as an act of revenge. Uh, you protested against the Chinese government. We're now going to grab you and torture you uh, and, and hurt you. So this is really just sort of sadistic penal torture. Um, there, is, there is torture designed to scare people. And often torture fulfills multiple functions like these. Uh, we are going to grab a, a handful of people off the street, torture them, and then release them uh, so that our opponents know what we are capable of. Um, then there's interrogational torture, which is the focus of the book. This is torture designed to extract information. For better or worse, the torture that the Inquisition enacted was not sadistic. I know that sounds crazy because it was so painful and it was so cruel, but the purpose was not sadism. The purpose was not some, uh, some perverse pleasure that inquisitors took in just hurting people for the purpose of hurting them. It had a very precise goal, which was to extract information about precise things. Um, and I actually think that that's worse in many ways than sadistic torture. Sadistic torture, what I call torture in hot blood, uh, I'm angry at this terrorist. They may have been involved in 9-11. I'm gonna teach them a lesson. I'm, I'm sort of torturing in part because, I've, um, because I'm not disciplined. Uh, you, you saw this in Abu Ghraib. It, it's just it's just pure sadism. I'm not, I'm not I don't want any information from this person. I just want to humiliate them and I just want to harm them. Uh, it is it is in a way much more relatable than this bureaucratic, cold procedural torture that the Inquisition uh, participated in, in which they tortured people who had blood on their hands, people who didn't have blood on their hands, the innocent, the guilty. Everybody could be tortured, the healthy, the sick, the old, the young. And the torture followed a protocol, a very clear legal protocol. And when the person collaborated, the torture just stopped. Um, that to me is almost more terrifying. Uh, many people think that this torture was confessional. Uh, you know, you have this image of the inquisitor with whip in hand, uh, standing over the victim and screaming, confess, confess. And that's exactly the opposite of what the, Inquisi the inquisitors slyly and cruelly never told the victim what to say. They never told the victim what would get the torture to stop. The only thing the inquisitors said to the victim was, give us all the information you have, leave out no detail. And when the victim said, well, what exactly do you want to know? The inquisitors never gave away what they wanted to know, what they knew and what they didn't. They just said, we want to know everything. So this is not confessional torture. This is interrogational torture. I want data from you. I want to know, I'm not going to tell you what I want to know, but, but you know, um, among ourselves, what we're looking for is who's the head of your community? How many Jews are there? 
Where do you meet? Uh, where are your sacred books? What holidays do you celebrate? Have you tried to persuade other people to become Jewish? How do you raise your kids? They want to know facts. They want to know facts that can be confirmed by means of evidence. Uh, they're, they're not looking for confessions of faith because confessions of faith are too easy to fake. You can always pretend that you believe in, you know, Jesus and the resurrection. There's no way that inquisitor can prove you wrong. The, the facts that they're gathering are facts that can be proven right or wrong. Um, so that's confessional torture. And then the last issue is, is an issue we already talked about a little, uh, and that's this distinction between exploratory torture, the kind that the CIA is engaged in. I want new information, fresh, exciting, pertinent information that will help me dismantle a bomb or stop an attack. The Inquisition did not do that. And then there's corroborative torture. I want to collect information to either confirm or reject suspicions I already have. That's what the Inquisition did. There's another passage I'd like to share with you to ask for you to elaborate on. It's on page 117. You write the following. Throughout, inquisitors displayed caution in drawing a line between interrogational torture designed to unmask heretics and expose their communities and alternative forms of torture that would not have served this purpose, such as penal or confessional torture. There was no relationship between the decision to employ torture during a trial and the outcome of that trial. The Inquisition had many forms of penal violence at its disposal, including death at the stake. It employed these punishments independently of its use of torture. The manuscripts I analyzed also display the court's awareness of the dangers inherent in conflating interrogational torture with confessional torture. Inquisitors did not seek proclamations of guilt or piety. They sought falsifiable information. They took care to avoid leading questions and instead urged such suspects to confess all they knew without providing hints about the court's suspicions, specific intentions, the identity of other witnesses, or the testimony provided by those witnesses. This made it difficult for torture victims to offer false testimony to appease their tormentors or to reveal just enough information for torture to cease without disclosing too much. The massive torture campaign that the Inquisition engaged in during the course of three centuries exacted a heavy price. For Jews and Muslims in Spanish dominions, the Inquisition signaled the end of an era of cultural flourishing and the onset of expulsions, torment, and death. As these communities fled from the south of Spain, where the first courts were established to the north, and from there to Portugal, or across the Atlantic to New Spain, the Inquisition followed. In 1482, the Inquisition established its first four permanent tribunals in Castile, in, in Seville and Cordova, and Aragon in Valencia and Saragossa. By 1500, it boasted 10 such tribunals across Spain. By 1520, more, four more had opened, including tribunals in the Canary Islands, Sicily and Sardinia. Subsequently, it established five more tribunals in such far-flung lo locations as Lima, Mexico City, and present-day Colombia. Can you elaborate on this passage? So implicit in the passage are my criticisms of the way American intelligence agencies have tortured. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's not entirely apparent in, in, in just that passage, but, but really you, you, you quoted me on two separate issues. The first issue you quoted me on is 
this problem of false confession. If you ask leading questions, such as, is it true that you are a member of Al-Qaeda? Isn't it true that Osama bin Laden is hiding here? Isn't it true that you are planning this kind of attack? It's very easy for, for a, a, a torture victim to just say, yes, yes, of course it's true. And that's confessional torture, and it leads to false information, which is why the Inquisition avoided it fastidiously. And as I've already suggested to you a couple of minutes ago, you can see torture victims almost begging the Inquisitor for leading questions. Tell me what you want me to say so I can get the hell out of here. And Inquisitors are very, very careful not to land in that trap. We do know that the CIA did walk into that trap. In at least one case, uh, CIA agents or people working for the CIA uh, asked a, uh, a prisoner um, who had been, who had been uh, captured in the Middle East, you know, isn't it true that Al-Qaeda has weapons of mass destruction? And at some point, the torture victim said, yes, yes, absolutely. What the hell, get me out of here. Yes, of course, Al-Qaeda has weapons of mass destruction, which turned out just to not be true. Uh, not about Al-Qaeda, not about Saddam Hussein. It just turned out not to be true. Uh, so that was, that was a mistake. That's, that's the trap of confessional torture. It's what torture critics, when they say, you know, here's why torture doesn't work, they say torture doesn't work because victims will tell you whatever you want to hear. But of course, victims can only tell you whatever you want to hear if they know what it is that you want to hear. And the Inquisition, and I think any smart, vicious, sadistic torture organization will not tell you what they want to hear. And that's why torture works. So that's the first issue you noted. The second issue you noted is how quickly and how far these inquisitorial courts and torture chambers spread first across Spain, then into Portugal, then into the Spanish colonies, um, all the way to, to Mexico, Peru, and beyond. Um, and that is a very big concern with torture, uh, that it cannot be contained that it spreads through organizations like a wildfire. And we see this in what happened with US forces after 9-11. That in the beginning, Donald Rumsfeld gave permission for very limited forms of torture under very limited circumstances in very limited locations. And pretty soon other units, either intelligence units or military units, copied and transmitted these forms of torture to places where torture was not intended to happen. And with forms of torture that had not been authorized. And so torture spreads like a cancer in a way through an institution. That's true for the Spanish Inquisition, which was very disciplined. And nonetheless, what started off as one or two, then four tribunals soon became 10 or 20 or 30 tribunals. And, uh, and that's a real, it's a real containment problem. Um, as different organizational units try to one-up one another with even more torture, with even more aggressive torture, with even more cruel torture, torture very quickly gets out of hand. In what ways was Spain's use of torture in the Inquisition similar or different from other European powers' usage of torture during this time? Can you comment on the use of torture in Britain, France, or Russia and their broader empires? What was similar or different vis-a-vis -vis Spain? Um, as a rule, and this was very surprising to me uh, when I started reading close analyses 
and documents from the Spanish Inquisition, as a rule, the Spanish Inquisition was very restrained in its torture compared to civil courts, non-religious institutions at the same time. This is not to say that the Spanish Inquisition was not tremendously cruel. I wouldn't wish those tortures on my worst enemies, um, but they only used two or three forms of torture, namely stretching on the rack, uh, stretching by being hung from the ceiling by a series of ropes, and what we would today call waterboarding. Uh, mostly it was a, a form of torture on the rack, which accurately described is uh, twisting someone's arm. So, so tying ropes around the upper arms of victims and twisting them, which hurts a lot. In, while all this was happening in the dungeons of the Spanish Inquisition, European civil courts uh, you know, the, the, the torture conducted by mayors and dukes and kings and princes was much more brutal uh, and much more visceral. Uh, burning with fire, breaking of bones, shedding of blood, um, torture that would deform and maim the body in the long term, which as a rule, the Spanish Inquisition tried to avoid. So one of the cruelties of the Spanish Inquisition was um, that you often did not show signs of torture. Uh, you were uh, isolated in a prison cell, possibly for years. This is not some something someone in the medieval period or early modern period would have referred to as torture at all. This was standard. Um, you, uh, your, your, your limbs might be uh, temporarily stretched. Your joints might be dislocated or not. Um, but the Inquisition did not use fire to burn its victims. It uh, tried not to draw blood. Very, very few of the thousands of torture victims I read about died in the torture chamber. Very few. And if they fainted, the torture ended right then and there. Uh, so contrary to common perception, again, this is not sadism per se. The sadism actually happens not so much in the torture chamber, but often after the end of a trial. If you're found guilty, you might be whipped. If you're found guilty, you might be jailed for life or um, subjected to hard labor that would probably kill you, such as you know row rowing in the royal galleys for 10 years. You probably wouldn't survive the first of those two years. And oddly yet, there's no relationship between torture and those penalties. People who were not tortured were often then whipped for their crimes or even executed uh, or sentenced to life in prison or sentenced to life for hard labor. People who were tortured and collaborated were then often set free. There's no relationship between those two things. The sadism, in other words, the, the penal pain, pain designed to cause pain as an ends, happens outside the torture chamber after the trial. Inside the torture chamber, the pain is goal-oriented, usually quite brief, terrible, but very, very limited and very, very constrained by law, which is not the case in courts in Europe uh, in that period, where, where people were often killed in the torture chamber, accidentally or not, squeezed to death, uh, amputated, bled to death, burned to death, 
Um, the Inquisition did not engage in these things. And, and if you're ever in Spain and you visit one of those Inquisition museums and uh, you'll see some of these torture devices suppose that were supposed to um, uh, you know, uh, choke you to death or bleed you to death or crush you to death, those are, those are all fake. They're not, they're not devices ever used by the Inquisition. Like the Inquisition never used the Iron Maiden. In, in fact, it's not clear that anybody ever used the Iron Maiden. Those are sort of fantasies, um, sadistic fantasies that, that bear no relationship to, to what the Inquisition actually did. There's another passage I'd be curious to draw your attention to on page 90. Uh, you write the following. There followed five twists of the ropes. The scribe recorded her screaming and pleading. Luis later told the court that he could hear his mother's tortured screams from his jail cell. She was then taken to the potro and tied up. Before this torture could begin, Francisca revealed that her deceased husband had taught her Jewish law and custom not to eat the food of dirty animals, such as pigs, figs without scales, or drowned fowl, and how to behead a chicken with a knife in the matter of kosher slaughter. Nobody but her husband was present when he taught her. He did so while they were alone in the intimacy of their bedroom. But Francisca also admitted that her widowed daughter, who was also a prisoner, practiced with her. For example, she and Isabel celebrated Passover in Tahco together in 1588. In the Inquisition knew then, as we do now, that Francisca and Isabel do not did not celebrate that Passover alone in Tahco. It knew that her children, Catalina, Baltazar, Leonor, Luis, and Mariana, had celebrated with Francisca and Isabel. All this was information that the Inquisition had already possessed and that it knew Francisca to be withholding. Can you elaborate on this passage? Yeah, so you're describing a, a passage um, from uh, based on Inquisition documents from uh, Mexico City. So it, it's worth remembering that the Inquisition chased Jews, uh, not just throughout Spain and into Portugal, but then also to the overseas colonies. And the family that this passage relates to is the Carvajal family, possibly one of the most famous Jewish families in early uh, Mexico uh, history, so colonial Mexico history, not early, but colonial Mexico history. Um, the Carvajal family uh, were a very prominent uh, converso family, meaning they were uh, Jews pretending to be Christians. Uh, they headed the secret Jewish community in Mexico City at the time. Luis de Carvajal, who you mentioned at the beginning of this passage, um, wrote several books about his belief, uh, about his prayers. And those are the first books ever written by a Jew in the New World. So Luis is very, very prominent. Uh, these books have survived. We, we know about his Jewish life. And we know about the very large Jewish community that he led, about 120, maybe 150 people, who the Inquisition gradually unmasked over the course of almost a decade. Um, uh, part of the tragedy here is that both Luis and his mother, Francisca, uh, were tortured. Francisca managed for a while to keep the identity of community members secret, and Luis did not. Luis, who was the head of the community, was tortured and revealed under torture the names of 120 other Jews 
who were soon rounded up uh, and brought before the Inquisition. Um, and, and it was horrible. I mean, we have pages after pages of description of, of how these people were arrested, uh, how they attempted to lie, how some of them were released and then rearrested as more evidence came in. Uh, the torture of, of uh, Luis over the course of, of months and years uh, eventually leads him to attempt suicide. He fails. He tries to attempt suicide inside the, the prison. Um, and uh, he then betrays the entire community and ends up being burned at the stake together with his mother, together with his sisters, um, together with his friend Manuel de Lucena, who we mentioned earlier in this conversation. Um, so it's it's a really, it's a heartbreaking story. It's a heartbreaking story, but on the other hand, uh, having seen the list of people who Luis um, condemns, when he's asked by the Inquisition, you know, name, name other Jews in the community, he offers a list under torture. His best friend, Manuel de Lucena, in parallel, offers another list, not under torture. Manuel is never tortured. And the lists match. I can just go name by name and compare them. And by now, I have so many documents about that community, so many thousands, tens of thousands of pages of files. I know everything about this community. I know I can drop the family trees. I know who butchered the kosher meat. I know who the rabbi was. I know where they prayed. I know who was having secret love affairs with whom. Um, so I can look at these lists and, and I can confirm that, yes, indeed, these were people who were secretly practicing Jewish practices. So, so the torture of Luis de Carvajal was horrid and it provided information that was true. Which scholars of ethics and moral philosophy contributed most to your own thinking in this on this matter in regard to the Inquisition and its lessons? Which thinkers contributed most to progress in your own evolution on questions pertaining to torture? Right, so, so, uh, so I am not primarily a scholar of ethics. I'm, I'm primarily a, a scholar of war and peace, but I've always been very interested in just war theory. Uh, and, uh, you know, Michael Walzer is a, is a scholar uh, whose work I very, very much appreciate and teach to my students at Berkeley. Um, but uh, when it came to studying torture and, um, and, and sort of figuring out what my responsibility was as scholar, to both reveal the truth about what I learned and uh, do good in the world, um, I fell back on a um, medieval scholar, St. Thomas Aquinas, whose work I had uh, often read and also taught to my students, um, who was very interested in a Christian doctrine called the doctrine of double effect. Um, the doctrine of double effect examines the many cases, they're very common, in which one uh, engages in harm in order to do good. And it's uh, almost impossible to think of cases in which you can do good without doing some harm. Even if I were to invent a medicine tomorrow that cures all form of cancer, I would be putting hundreds of thousands of doctors out of a job. So, so in, in, in less hypothetical cases, uh, when we try to do good, especially on the battlefield, especially in the realm of politics, um, 
that will always come with costs. And Thomas Aquinas helped me think about how the costs of studying torture can be weighed against the benefits of studying torture. My conclusions on that front, I think, are still um, nascent. Uh, I, I haven't had many opportunities to rely on other scholars who have considered these things because so many other scholars who study torture simply condemn torture. That's where their research starts and ends. It's bad, it doesn't work, we shouldn't support it, the end. So now I think that, that torture is becoming a more serious and more careful field of academic analysis. And I am seeing that happen. It's a first opportunity for people who study torture to grapple with this question. Uh, what do I reveal about torture that I've learned? How do I make sure to understand torture without aiding and abetting torture? It's not a new question. It's only a new question in the field of torture. It's not a new question in the, in the study of war. My colleagues who study nuclear weapons or my colleagues who study terrorism or my colleagues who study counterinsurgency all have to grapple with the question, how do I study terrorism without promoting terrorism? How do I study counterinsurgency without uh, encouraging my government to engage in acts of violence? How do I study the outbreak of war or how do I study uh, nonviolent protest without empowering governments that are trying to crack down on nonviolent protest? I think there are ways to do that. I think there are ways to study torture carefully and responsibly without glamorizing it, without justifying it, uh, that reveal information that we need to know but that don't necessarily aid and abet evildoers. And Thomas Aquinas, in, in my mind, was helpful. And so I dedicate the last part of the book to the ethics of studying torture, which I think is a thorny topic. I have another passage I'd be interested to run by you from pages 65 and 66. You write the following. The torture cases in Ciudad Real also offer two important lessons for scholars of inquisitorial torture. The first is that the Inquisition did not display a particular bias for or against torture. As a means of acquiring evidence, it used torture to coerce victims who would not otherwise collaborate, knowing all too well that torture might yield misleading or confusing information. But paradoxically, it is all it also used torture to correct to correct lies told in other torture sessions where testimony seemed suspect the inquisition deemed torture a legitimate means of arriving at truth even if the initially suspect testimony was itself the product of torture the inquisition tortured rarely in ciudad real but it was not averse to torturing the same individual multiple times regardless of how of the significance of the information at stake or the magnitude of the heresy on trial in some the inquisition regarded torture with indifference sometimes it revealed the truth sometimes it did not sometimes it had to recur multiple times before it revealed the truth or failed to do so a second lesson has to do with the credibility of these archival sources it is not noting it is worth noting that our only source of information about the unexceptional torture record in Ciudad Real is the Inquisition itself. Its scribes were impartial in reporting cases of failure alongside cases of success. Indeed, in Ciudad Real, 
the scribes of the Inquisition were the scribes of the Inquisition recorded primarily failure. They did not seek out bias to bias the evidence, since the documents they were creating were intended for internal use only. The decision to record torture in detail, regardless of outcome, provides the most persuasive evidence for the Inquisition's desire to learn from its mistakes. It had all the time and resources it needed to perfect its torture methods. Can you unpack this and elucidate upon this for us? Sure, gladly. So, so one of the main challenges in studying torture is the challenge of evidence. Um, all we know about US torture after 9-11 comes either from the CIA or the FBI. The FBI, for uh, legal reasons, um, opposes torture. The CIA uh, is sometimes, not always, endorses torture. Uh, and so the FBI uh, reports tell us that uh, torture was terrible and never worked and yielded no information that was in any way useful. And the CIA tells us that torture was wonderful and it always worked. Um, and I don't believe either side. I, I don't have enough information and I don't have verifiable information. I don't know what to do with these CIA and FBI sources. Uh, they in part just contradict one another flatly on matters of fact. The FBI says this person was tortured 100 times. The CIA says it was only, it was only tortured five times. The, the, the records are just not reconcilable. Um, so to, to the second part of the quote you read, the Inquisition, because its documents are internal, because they are 400 years old, they're not intended for me. They were in turn intended, written by one inquisitor for another inquisitor. Uh, I trust those documents more. There are thousands of them. And most of what they report is torture failure which is another reason why I trust them. So um, I, I chose multiple places and multiple periods in which to sort of dive into the archives of the Inquisition. One of those is Ciudad Real. I, I look at torture there in a, in a 30 year period from 1484 to 1515. Um, the Inquisition uh, interrogates uh, uh, well over a hundred people in that period. And it only tortures a handful of them. So conclusion number one, the Inquisition uses torture quite selectively. Conclusion number two, most of those torture incidents, I shouldn't say a handful, I think there are about nine cases of torture in, in Ciudad Real. Um, most of those cases of torture yield nothing. And the person is just let go. Um, we, the Inquisition had multiple reasons to assume that this person knew something. His neighbors said something about him. His family members said something about him. Evidence was found in his house. Nonetheless, he was not willing to collaborate. So after a long period of non-torture interrogation, the person was tortured. He did not reveal anything. And at some point, the Inquisition just says, okay, I guess, uh, I guess he's innocent and send him home. And this gets reported. There are instances in which people are tortured and reveal information. And the Inquisition later finds out that the information revealed in the torture was patently false. One of the women that's tortured in Ciudad Real turns out later on to be an alcoholic who has a very bad reputation in Ciudad Real as being sort of very jealous of her neighbors. She's a gossip and she rats them out while she's being tortured. And they later collect more evidence that shows um, that she was lying. She was intentionally misleading under torture. So they bring her back. They 
they, they don't give her enough information to quite know what they know and what they don't know, but they say to her, information you gave us last time turned out not to be true. This is your chance now to correct and tell us what is true. Um, and she refuses to. So they torture her a second time. And this time under torture, she admits, I was jealous of them. I hate them and their husbands. I hate the nice clothes that they wear on holidays. I'm sorry I told lies. So torture here is used to correct torture. Again, not a great advertisement for the success of torture. And then there's a third category of cases in which torture actually yields information that turns out to be true. So you see the Inquisition in this period sort of experimenting with torture very carefully, gradually learning lessons, who to torture and when to torture, how to be more patient, how to torture more slowly, how to collect as much information as you can before you subject victims to torture. Um, so that in by the time we get to uh, Mexico City in the early uh, in the in the late 16th century, so a uh, hundred years after Ciudad Real, the 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 Inquisition is much more. I use the word with hesitation, but much more professional, much more bureaucratized. They make fewer mistakes. Their um, ability to extract reliable information now reaches about um, 30% of torture victims, um, which, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, Ari, whether you think that uh, extracting information out of 30% of torture victims, whether that counts as, you know, is that a good record? Is that a bad record? I, I don't know how to evaluate that. Uh, it, it suggests to me that people who say torture never works are way off. And people who say torture always works are way off. Here are the data. Look at them and decide for yourself uh, whether a 30, 29% um, evidence rate, whether that in your mind justifies this form of cruelty. How did you find and locate your sources? What challenges did you encounter in the process of research that you invested in this book? The primary challenge is that there's too much information. The Inquisition tortured over the course of 300, 400 years. There is the Roman Inquisition in Italy. There's the Spanish Inquisition in Spain and Portugal and the overseas colonies. Uh, thousands and thousands of court cases, each hundreds of pages long. One of the primary documents that I had the privilege of reading uh, in Berkeley uh, uh, consists of 1,500 pages handwritten closely scribbled in 400 year old Spanish Castilian. Um, so knowing where to start uh, was, was difficult. How do I choose which files to read and which files not to read? People have spent their entire lives learning about the actions of the Inquisition in just one city. And I'm not a historian and I'm not uh, an archivist. I'm not uh, necessarily trained in handling archival documents. I'm a, I'm a scholar of international conflict. So I relied on work done by my predecessors who study the history of the Spanish Inquisition. And I tried to vary my locations and my dips into the data set so that I could look at different periods and I could look at different places. And, and this is very important in political science, I wanted different types of data. So in Ciudad Real, I had about, uh, you know, two handfuls of torture cases among the hundred cases of non-torture. 
I wanted to compare torture and non-torture side by side. In the uh, late 15th, early 16th century, uh, uh, Ciudad Real is, um, uh, you know, in, in central Spain, uh, not 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 too far from not too far from Madrid. Uh, so that's one source. Then in Toledo, 1575 to 1610, I looked at a very large database of cases, in excess of a thousand cases, all in this one city in this one period. And uh, again, about 10% of those were tortured. And because I had so many cases in Toledo, I could look at variables like gender. How were women treated versus men? How were people suspected of being Muslim treated differently from being people being suspected of being Jewish? How did the young, how were the young treated differently from the old? How were torture cases treated differently from non-torture cases? I, I, I could even conduct some basic statistical analysis because I had so many cases. And then finally, in Mexico City, I dove very deeply into the lives of the Carvajal and Lucena families and was able to read almost all the files related to those cases. Those files are uh, in Mexico City. Um, I, uh, in some cases, I was able to use transcripts. In other cases, uh, the, the archives in Mexico actually sent me the files, so I was able to read them here. And some of the files made their way to the Berkeley campus uh, years ago. So I was able to read them uh, in the Berkeley libraries and really get a very close understanding of the motives of both the perpetrators and the victims. Um, so that's how I tried to solve this problem of too much information, to vary by period, to vary by location, and to vary by data source. I have another passage I'd be curious if you could comment on, which is from page 151. You write as follows. When I present my research, I am often asked directly or indirectly to declare my personal stance on torture. Is he contributing to torture prevention or is he not, asked one reviewer. Such ad hominem questions strike me as unconstructive. At best, they shame the scholar and their scholarship. They suggest that audiences need to correct for biases in scholarship based on the agenda of the author. At worst, they demean the audience. They imply that readers are only receptive to the ideas of scholars who share their agenda. Such purity tests are yet another testament to how young the research program on torture is and how much more needs to mature before it can be considered a professional field of inquiry. The obligation of the scholar is not to set their audience's minds at ease. Rather, their obligation is to put checks in place to ensure that the scholarly enterprise is ethical, while at the same time guarding personal preferences from distorting their analysis and findings. I will not declare my personal stance on torture. It has no bearing on my findings. I will say only this. Rabbi Mark was my great-grandfather. The victims of the Inquisition in Ciudad Real, Toledo, and Mexico City are my ancestors. I will leave it at that. Can you share with us what you mean in this passage? And can you tell us about Rabbi Mark? Sure. Uh, so, so, um, so I'll take it a step back. I, I mentioned this in regard to scholars of terrorism and scholars of genocide. Uh, when those fields first began developing, Audiences were very suspicious of political scientists. Um, 
and uh, and and the scholarly enterprise. Uh, maybe there are things that should never be studied. Uh, I don't I don't think so. But some people think that that some things are are not worthy of uh, scholarship and analysis. Uh, that you should just condemn them, and, and that's it. Um, I think that's dangerous. I think there are assumptions we make about torture that lead to bad policy. I think there are criticisms of torture that are strong and powerful and persuasive. But I also think there are criticisms of torture that are, are weak and unrealistic. And when people who torture hear those weak criticisms, they're not going to take them seriously. If you walk up to the offices of the CIA in Langley, Virginia, and bang on the door and say, stop torturing, torture doesn't work, people inside the building will laugh at you because they know it works. They have derived useful intelligence from torture. Your criticism is, is ineffective. Uh, there are much better ways to criticize the CIA's torture policy than to make stupid statements about torture. Um, nonetheless, I've encountered again and again in my research a, a request for virtue signaling, right? Before we begin, Ron, can you please put your hand on the Bible and say for the purposes of everybody in the room that torture is bad and horrible and it's not nice to hurt people. Uh, I, I find that terribly demeaning and I find it sort of irrelevant. Uh, it's like asking a, a, a doctor before they give you a cancer diagnosis, uh, doctor, can you please declare for everybody in the room that cancer is bad? Uh, we no longer ask scholars of terrorism to start their books with the statement, terrorism is not nice. Or scholars of war to start their books with the statement that say, well, you know, war is dreadful and I don't support it in any way. My, my goal here is not to support or oppose war. My goal here is to study it. And if I am an ardent opponent of the thing I study, you may not want to read my book because if I'm such an ardent opponent, I'm going to distort the data in order to match my opposition. I'm going to bang my opposition to torture drum. And this book then becomes a polemic and not an analysis. And similarly, if I'm an ardent supporter of torture, you also shouldn't read my book because, uh, because you shouldn't believe the analysis, you shouldn't believe the data. So my job as a social scientist is to present you with carefully collected evidence as dispassionate as possible. Um, and, so, and so I find these, these sort of requests for purity tests to be at best irrelevant and at worst kind of demeaning. It's, it, it, they often come from people who don't understand what academia is. My, my job here is not uh, to engage in wishful thinking and, and provide you with a book that will make you feel great about your opinions and confirm everything you always knew to be true. My job as an academic is to find out something about the world and share it with you whether you like it or not. And my personal views on, uh, on torture are just completely irrelevant. They don't matter. You don't need to know me. It's none of your business what my personal views on torture are. That said, um, I, I am a descendant of torture victims. You can do with that information whatever you like. Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Mark, who, whose story I tell uh, at the beginning of the last chapter, was uh, the chief rabbi of a very large Jewish community in Romania uh, on the eve of World War II, who was uh, imprisoned by the Gestapo uh, and tortured and eventually executed. Um, and I describe his torture in detail, though I, I don't know much about it but uh, the Eichmann trial reveals uh, when it happened and some aspects of the torture. Uh, he was my great-grandfather. Uh, do I need to say anything beyond that? I don't, need, I don't think I need to say anything beyond that. 
about my my attitude towards torture. And I, I truly don't think it's it's relevant. I, I really don't think uh, when a, a political scientist offers you uh, an analysis of the upcoming elections, I don't think you should begin that interview by asking the political scientist, yes, but are you a Republican or not? It's kind of a rude question in a way. It doesn't matter if I'm a Republican or not. I'm a political scientist. The analysis I'm about to provide has nothing to do with my personal political preferences. It has to do with how I crunch numbers. It has to do with the evidence I collect and you're welcome to criticize that evidence. But anything beyond that is ad hominem, meaning it's an attack on me or a praise of me as a person. If I tell you that I think the Republicans are going to sweep Congress in the upcoming midterm elections, that ought to be true regardless of whether I'm rooting for the Republicans or whether I'm rooting for the Democrats. And if I tell you that torture is slow, often unreliable, but sometimes provides useful information, uh, regardless of how terrible it is, um, you don't need to know whether I support torture in order for that to be informative. If we think about torture in the contemporary era, for example, the history of torture in dictatorships in Africa, South America, Southeast Asia and the Middle East, or the legacy of torture in Soviet Russia, communist China, Nazi Germany. What if anything is unique about the Spanish Inquisition's practice of torture vis-a-vis -vis 20th century examples of torture? Everything is unique, which is why it's very dangerous to skip from lessons about the Spanish Inquisition 400 years ago to an analysis of torture today. Mm -hmm. We can very carefully look at those results and ask ourselves, are there some parallelisms here? Is uh, you know, waterboarding somebody in a basement in Mexico City 400 years ago similar or different from waterboarding uh, somebody at a, a black ops site by the CIA in, in 2010? And I think the differences are massive. The Inquisition, first of all, was never under time pressure. It took hundreds of years to complete its task. So that's difference number one. Difference number two, it had unlimited political authority and unlimited budgets. It had the full support of the Spanish monarchs behind it. It had all the money it needed. Uh, third, uh, the crimes that it was trying to uncover were religious practices, not religious ideas, but religious practices, which is very different, of course, from what contemporary governments are trying to uncover. Uh, I think we're in number four, maybe we're in difference number five, I lost count. Um, the Inquisition was trying to uncover past crimes and not future crimes. When intelligence agencies interrogate or authoritarian governments uh, interrogate by means of torture, they're often trying to predict a future act. That's not what the Spanish Inquisition was trying to do. The Spanish Inquisition was not trying to figure out what you were going to do tomorrow. The Spanish Inquisition often wanted to know who you prayed with or who you fasted with five or six years ago. And those facts are much easier to establish than what is your intention? Where is your next attack going to be? Uh, uh, who will you recruit and how will you re recruit them three, four years down the line? Um, 
The things that are similar, I think are also interesting. I don't think human physiology and psychology have changed much. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, things that hurt people 400 years ago uh, still hurt people, um, which is why you find so many parallelisms in, in the ways in which modern governments have tortured um, and, and um, I, uh, the Inquisition tortured. Um, but, but, but the differences in, in timeline, the differences in budget, and really the fact that the Inquisition was a totalitarian institution. Maybe that's the point on which I should sort of uh, finish emphasizing the differences. The CIA, we don't know how many people in the CIA has tortured. We have absolutely no clue. Um, maybe it's dozens, maybe it's hundreds. The Inquisition was capable of torturing everybody, everybody in society, Jewish, non-Jewish, Muslim, non-Muslim, old, young, sick, healthy. If you were living within the territories of Spain or New Spain, you could be brought in to be tortured. That's not how the CIA works. So we're talking about a completely different scope, a completely different timeline, a completely different purpose. Is there something to be learned from the past about the present? Maybe. I've conducted analysis of the past. I'm sharing my findings. You're welcome to learn from that what you think is appropriate. I, I just urge caution. On page 50, you write the following. The Inquisition had also significantly refined its torture practices. As the cases demonstrate, the scribes now provided a far more meticulous account of the procedures employed in the torture chamber and the outcomes they elicited. And it prolonged the time its victims spent in jail prior to their torture from weeks to months and even sometimes years. In parallel, the torture cases that occurred after 1500 demonstrate a gradual shift away from torture used to generate new testimony and toward torture used to corroborate prior testimony. Exploratory torture still occurred after 1500 it was increasingly used in conjunction with corroborative torture. Half of the torture victims in this period were tortured twice because exploratory torture provided fragmentary information that was later contradicted by other witnesses and by the victim's own retractions. They were tortured a second time to assess whether their initial claims or their later retractions were the more reliable. This new mode of corroborative torture provided more extensive reliable evidence than the older exploratory torture but it required corroborative information from alternative witnesses voluntary or coerced that had not been available to the inquisition in the 1480s and 1490s now with many hundreds of witness testimonies at its disposal the inquisition could rely on torture to complete the picture rather than provide futile stabs in the dark. Can you clarify what you're trying to say in this passage? Right, so you're reading about the Inquisition in Ciudad Real, which is really one of the mm -hmm. first uh, courts ever established mm -hmm. uh, by the Inquisition. Uh, Torquemada had not yet assembled his team of inquisitors to provide a clear set of rules and guidelines. There were going to be several of those meetings in the following decades in which they would make very, very clear what the quote unquote best, most effective unquote ways of torturing are. And so it's very interesting for me to look at that period and sort of see what the Inquisition does well and not well by its own standards and how it tries to learn from that. 
Um, and, and what we see is the failure of exploratory torture and the relative efficacy of corroborative torture. So when you enter a town and you grab people off the street and you just start torturing them, you don't really know what questions to ask. And when they provide you with answers, you don't really know whether those answers are true or not. You're stabbing in the dark. That's what I call exploratory torture. It generates a ton of information, but most of that information is false, and you have no way of distinguishing true from false. A much wiser procedure, which the Inquisition learns to adopt over the years, is to not torture at all in the beginning, but to allow people to provide voluntary or semi-coerced evidence. Because remember, just keeping somebody in the dungeon of the Inquisition for a year in the dark does not count as torture. So, so you know, this is pretty cruel and it's pretty awful. But by the Inquisition's definition, this is not torture. Um, and you assemble evidence for a year or two. Hundreds of people come before the court. You interrogate them, you interrogate their neighbors, you interrogate their children, you bring them back, you interrogate them a second time, a third time, and slowly a map develops of who's doing what to whom. And just as the Inquisition is able to develop the map, so am I, because I'm reading their documents. I can see the same family tree. I can see the same neighborhood map. I can understand at some point why they insist on eventually torturing this person, because they're the only person who has not collaborated. And that's corroborative torture. It's torture that happens towards the end. It's very easy now for the Inquisition to see what happened and what has not happened. Um, and it's very easy for them to tell who's telling them the truth and who still needs to um, collaborate. The paradox here, I've said it about an hour ago, Ari, but I'm, I'm going to repeat the paradox. Torture is most effective from the Inquisition's point of view when it provides information that the Inquisition already knows. That is precisely the condition under which Americans would never be willing to torture. Conversely, the only condition under which the average American is willing to endorse torture is if, if it provides new, exciting, crucial information. And that's not the kind of information that torture ever provided for the Inquisition. So it's almost like there's two circles that don't overlap. The way torture actually works for the Inquisition and the way Americans would want torture to work for them are two completely separate stories. So if someone in the CIA were to decide to emulate the ways of the Inquisition, which they could never do because our government wouldn't sanction it, our courts wouldn't permit it, our treasury would not pay for it. But if that's what they decided to do, they would have to incarcerate terrorists for many, many years before ever subjecting them to torture. They would have to torture not just terrorists, but their family members, their relatives, their neighbors, and of course, that's torture that the American people would never abide. Um, that's, that's in my mind, one of the main reasons for the book. Torture works, but it doesn't work the way you think it does. And if you are a torture proponent, it certainly doesn't work the way you wish it did. What lessons can your book teach cultures and societies other than the U.S., such as in the Islamic world or Africa or South America, where torture is still widely practiced? I don't know that it can teach much because the types of torture that you often find in developing countries 
especially under authoritarian regimes, is often either penal or uh, terrorizing or confessional. In other words, mm -hmm. the governments uh, that tend to torture, um, you know, in Syria, in Saudi Arabia, in Cuba, in China, uh, in Russia, uh, often their torture is not intended to extract information. Often the torture is intended either to punish or to deter or to just get a suspect to sign some confession that they can then condemn the suspect for, regardless of whether that confession is true or not. Um, so, so I don't think it, it's very useful there. I don't know that my book is useful at all. My book sheds light on something that happened 400 years ago. Uh, my main goal is not to be useful. My main goal is to um, illuminate and explore. I can imagine that governments around the world today do engage in interrogational torture. Governments that face threat of terrorism um, and hope to foil that terrorism by means of torture, I think the lesson from the book is uh, that's not how torture works. Uh, torture often leads misleading, often produces misleading information. When it works, it works towards the end of an investigation. It can take many years. The kind of torture that you see on television or in movies where an interrogator needs information quickly and you know just points a gun at the suspect's knee and says, tell me now or I'll shoot you in the knee. That, that's just not how torture worked, at least not during the Spanish Inquisition. Um, so I think the lessons for contemporary governments are few and far between. Mostly this is a book about the Spanish Inquisition. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, could you share with us what you're working on now as a subsequent project? What are you working on next as your current research? So I have uh, several uh, projects ongoing. I've uh, just finished a last publication on torture because I'm ready to move on to more upbeat topics. Um, I published a paper that I thought was, was quite interesting uh, to see which arguments against torture Americans find persuasive and not persuasive. Uh, I've told you, Ari, in the last uh, hour of our conversation, and I've tried to say in the book, uh, that the claim torture doesn't work um, is not going to be persuasive to torturers because they know otherwise. It turns out from my research that it's also not particularly persuasive to most Americans. Most Americans actually believe that torture does work, not because they've read my book, but just because that's, that's what they believe. If you want to turn Americans away from supporting torture, stop telling them it doesn't work because they won't believe you. What you should say instead, my surveys demonstrate, is you should describe torture to them and tell them how terrible it is. And it turns out that Americans find that to be quite persuasive. And in some of my uh, surveys, uh, 30, 40, 50% of Americans who would otherwise endorse torture stop endorsing torture when I describe to them exactly how it works. So when you ask an average American, you know, what do you think about sleep depriving a terrorist uh, in order to get information from them? Uh, up to 75% of Americans will say, yeah, let's do that. I don't like it. Let's do it. When you then tell Americans the truth, namely that the sleep deprivation is going to require weeks and months of sleep deprivation, they change their mind and they no longer endorse torture. 
So I, I think that's I think that's sort of an important lesson uh, about how to be persuasive against torture. So that's that's one project. I'm working on a book about religion and war in the Middle East and the relation between those two things, which is not as simple as meets the eye. Religion is not a cause of war in the Middle East, but it has all sorts of interesting effects. Um, so I'm working on that. And I'm also very interested in uh, military intelligence and deception. Uh, so that's that's another project that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very much involved with. Uh, I suspect that intelligence organizations are actually much more resilient than most people think they are. It's not so easy to deceive them. Very often when an opponent tries to deceive them, um, they see through the deception. So um, I'm working on it. I'm working on a paper on that. I wish you the best with those projects. They sound fascinating and important. Thank you. And thank you for uh, thank you for this uh, podcast. Oh, it was my honor. I, I enjoyed it. And I learned tremendously from you. This was a tremendous privilege. Thank you, Ari. As we bring our conversation to a close today, I'm your host on the New Books Network podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Ron Hasner. Dr. Hasner is Chancellor's Professor of Political Science and Helen Diller Family Chair in Israel Studies at University of California at Berkeley. We've been discussing his new book, Anatomy of Torture, published by Cornell University Press, 2022. Thank you.